Well, welcome to Trinity. My name is Todd, and I'm one of the pastors here. I have the honor of bringing the word today. It's good to see your smiling faces and smiling eyes for those of you that are wearing masks. And it feels really strange to be in a place where everybody or almost everybody is masked up and, and to be out in a world where there's people in mass and people out of mass and just this general, it just doesn't seem normal. And I remember seeing things like this on the television before for other places that have pandemics, but this is the first time I know in my lifetime that I haven't been in a situation where I've been in an environment where our entire country is mostly masked and we've been, we've been made to do this to protect people and protect ourselves. And that is a very confusing time, it's a scary time. Well, and I work at a hospital, I work for the VA, I've been working for the VA for, I've worked for the VA for 30 years now. And working at a hospital is a completely different experience than most people. And it's been a terrifying experience at times, but it's also been very edifying. And I have to admit that at the height of the pandemic, uh, while after wearing a mask all day, I was the teensiest bit jealous of the people that were at home. At home, I kind of imagined how many woodworking projects I could have done, how many Reddit posts for, for quarantine projects I could have hashtagged, thought about all this disposable time I might have if I was at home in my garage, which is more of a wood shop than a garage. But I know that's also not real. You haven't had a vacation, have you? It's been no picnic for you either, has it? My oldest daughter, who just got a new job right before corona hit, filed for unemployment when they reduced her hours back to just a couple hours a week. And in the midst of that, the unemployment office denied her claim because she hadn't been working at her new job for 10 weeks. So she has this big gap. She has no money coming in. So we talked over the course of a couple weeks. And I just remember the... the the stress in her voice as she told me how, how difficult it was to make ends meet. And we did help out. We are the kind of parents that can do that for her because both of us were still working. But even that was not enough. And I remember talking to her several weeks after the pandemic hit, just a couple weeks ago. And she called me and she said, hey, you know what's funny? <laughs> I have an nest egg. So overnight, on Saturday, the unemployment and the unemployment back pay hit, and she wakes up to having $4 in her checking account to having $4,000 in her checking account. And by the way, she works at 119 West Main, so if you need some good food, it's a great place to eat. Her name's Brianna. <laughs> so, but that's a kind of unknown that provides some real stress in our lives that nobody really wants. And that's the kind of unknown that we're in the middle of. Pandemics and quarantines, they, they aren't really on our terms, are they? And they, again, don't really feel like a vacation. And vacations do not usually kill hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. 
Corona is no vacation. Pandemics remind us that we are not in control. The truth that we often ignore is that we are never in control. In our current pandemic situation, you are not in control. People are telling you to stay home. People are telling us when we can and can't worship. They're telling us how far away from each other we should sit. They're telling us whether or not we should wear a mask. They're telling us to get vaccinated. And this goes against us, especially as Americans, where we are the captains of our own ship. We want to believe in our own autonomy. And when you look at this, this isn't the only problem that we're not in control of. It's not just pandemics. This week we've had pandemics. We've had riots. We've had demonstrations. We've had cultural chaos. So in the midst of this, let this passage we're going to look at today be a tall drink of water for your parched, overly active, media-saturated soul. Let it be the anchor we cling to, friends. You are not in control, really, of anything. But we know the one who is. He is trustworthy and sure and steadfast and unfailing all the things that we are not. Today's passage is about truth and promise, but most of all, it is about hope. So if you would, take out your Bibles, open it to Matthew 17. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. I'll read it, we'll pray, and we'll unpack it together. So it starts like this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you for your son. We pray for eyes to see and ears to hear what your word has for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Allergies, allergy medicine, dried out, parched throats. I often thought, I wonder what would happen if I showed up with like a camelback 
the tube. So just a few weeks ago, I stood in this empty sanctuary and I preached to a pile of chairs. And in DJ's instruction on how to set up the, the chairs, there wasn't really a diagram. So his, uh, what he told me just had me really confused on how to make it work right there. And then the first time, my work had called in the middle of my sermon, and I was reaching across and hitting the, hitting the ignore button and turning off alarms because at one point we had a standing meeting uh, conference call on Saturdays and Sundays during the initial weeks of the pandemic. So in the midst of this, I'm balancing different things, and I'm using the offering box, which which has a slot in the top and this cajon to set it on the back and all the while wishing I had double tape with me because that would be really smart and I could just glue it there and then I'm sure it wouldn't move. But uh, away from here in the command post, is where, which is where I've been for the last nine weeks, in our incident management team, that's where I've pretty much been detailed mostly full time, it's been like drinking from a fire hose. I am a non-clinical person by trade. I'm a police officer, but I run the department, so I'm, I'm more in management than out there on patrol. But, so I go to the incident management team, and they're talking about things like swabbing and oral pharyngeal and nasal pharyngeal and IgG testing and IgM testing, and all these things I don't really understand. Viral lobes, viral loads. And it's been, it's been very disconcerting not to have my normal standing routine, especially as it involves you guys. It's been difficult being away. I'm glad we're back. For me, my detail is about to end, so I'll be back on Thursdays, and that brings me a lot of comfort to be able to plug back in. But as I talk to my friends about their pandemic experience, Many of their experiences have been completely different. Their stress from, comes from being home. Some of them, come, their stress comes from being bored. Some of their stress comes from their children being out of school and not going back. But for me, it's mostly the being away and then coming back and then to add to it, trying to set up the phone, and then in the midst of that, this whole thing, Facebook Live. So preaching to Facebook Live is not the way I've usually experienced Facebook Live. So I quickly found out a couple weeks ago that if I read all the comments as they came in, it probably wasn't going to go well. So disconnecting from all the interaction, which is usually how you interact with Facebook Live, is disconnecting from that posted a challenge. But one of the things I noticed was that one of the first questions that came up was from Michelle. And she said, what happened to your face? And I remember thinking, that sounds a whole lot like something Heather would say. But uh, nothing happened to my face. It's the same face I've always had. Minus the whiskers, which I'm growing back, but I don't usually have a clean-shaven face. But yes, I did for the last nine weeks. I've shaved my face because I need to be able to wear an N95. That requires a fit test, and you can't wear facial hair with it. But yes, that is what I look like without a beard. You know, when I went to work with my clean-shaven face, that was the same thing that many of my coworkers said. Like, what happened to your face? Why, why did you shave? 
Well, because I have to wear this N95, which not everybody has to wear, but I need to have a clean shaven face for that. And it occurs to me that they've never seen my naked face either. So the last time my face was clean shaven for any length of time, the longest length of time in the last 30, 30 years or so, that I haven't had a beard was in 2013 for a couple different months. So they, if they weren't around in 2013, hadn't seen me without a beard. But that is my true appearance. If I shave my beard, that is what I usually look like. That's the closest thing to the real me that you're going to get. It's funny how something as simple as shaving half a beard can reveal something different about a person. And sometimes removing that something reveals something else. In our passage today is along the same lines. We're going to go through the transfiguration where the disciples get to see Jesus in a whole different way. Our passage today is about Jesus exposing the fully man and fully God. And he wasn't always fully man. If we look at Philippians 2, 6 through 8, we see who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with, a thi- a God, with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming ob- obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see here that he emptied himself and he humbled himself, and this is a hard thing to grasp. And I don't have time to do it justice here, but God somehow empties himself so that he could take the form of a child and he did it as a rescue mission. And if you think about that, God's rescue plan for you was not to send a warrior who conquers, but to send a servant who suffers. And in suffering, and especially in death, he conquered. And as confusing as that is, he did it perfectly. One time only, just for you. The crux of this passage today goes back to the chapter, a question Jesus asked Peter. Peter, who do you say that I am? You might remember that he that's a follow-up question to him asking Peter, who do they say I am? But Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, and Christ confirms it, but also acknowledges that this was not revealed, that this was revealed to Peter by God. And he goes on to give Peter a glimpse of his life that he can expect as a disciple. What it looks like to follow the master. <coughs> Excuse me. And it, it doesn't look easy, does it? It's not easy. In our own strength, it's impossible. And when you mention the disciples' life in the same sentence with the cross and losing your life, eyebrows start to go up. We start to get uncomfortable. And DJ taught it last week, this way of the cross, and Jesus tells them that the way of following him involves self-denial and carrying a cross. And he mentions losing their life. Matthew 16, 25 from last week says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we shouldn't presume that this means martyrdom, although that is the reality for these men and countless of other Christians who have died professing their faith. 
But Jesus is talking about not hanging on to those things that keep us from the kingdom of God. What he's talking about is the same thing DJ mentioned last week. Those things that we value more than our soul. Those things that keep us from experiencing a deeper sense of heavenly joy, but may feed us temporarily. But for these disciples, it means literally. They will lose their life. They will literally lose their life at the hands of others, all except for John. And we're getting to a point in Matthew that we'll see firsthand that Jesus means is Jesus will literally carry his cross and lose his life. And do you wonder at this point how many of the disciples are still hoping for an earthly conqueror? Which one of them, or maybe all of them, are thinking, wait a second, Jesus, do you think that maybe you can just restore Israel and unseat the Roman Empire? That'll be great, and then we'll follow you. That's how we'll know that you are the Messiah. But that's not the answer. It's never been the answer, and even now, in our time, it seems as if some followers are expecting Jesus to somehow show up and destroy the enemies of God. Friends, Christ has already destroyed the enemy of God. It was sin. He's conquered it, and you are the result of that. So if we look at our text in verse 1, we find Jesus in his inner circle of Peter, James, and John heading up a high mountain. The mountain itself is, is in question. Some people believe it's Mount Tabor. It's more likely Mount Hermon. But in any case, they go up the mountain. It also says this happened six days later, and the account in Luke says about eight days. And we can see that the, the time disparity is probably just Luke's approximation of eight days, meaning about a week. So this transfiguration, which is a Greek word, meaning changed or transformed, is mentioned in all three Gospels, but it's excluded in John. And many scholars reason that John's Gospel excludes this because his whole point is to unpack the divinity of Jesus. So he's not really focusing on specific highlighting points like Matthew is here. Either way, it's only a few days after Jesus says, at the end of 16... Verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You might remember DJ pointed out that some of the possibilities for that passage point forward to this passage. And you also might remember that DJ and I, so I agree with DJ, <laughs> believe that this passage is in such close proximity to that passage is unlikely that this is exactly what he's, that, that this is what he's referring to. But we know they go up this mountain, and we know it's Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John, which is mentioned in the other synoptics, that kind of is Jesus' closest disciples, his closest friends. They're clearly a unit. And Luke 9, 20, 28 goes on to say about this, that Jesus went up the mountain to pray. It's left out in Matthew, but seems logical and goes on to say that they were in a deep sleep, the disciples were, when they awoke and saw Jesus' glory and the two men with them. Scripture records that sleep is very important to the disciples, records that they do it quite a bit, and it also records that they seem to do it when Jesus doesn't want them to do it or when he's busy doing something else, like praying. But the most important part of this passage is not how many days passed. It's not which mountain it is. 
So Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. Jesus' physical appearance changes. Essentially, Jesus experiences a physical transformation in two ways. If you look at the passage, it says his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. It also says they transfigured before them. This implies that the purpose of the transfiguration, it was for their benefit. As I just mentioned, these are his inner circle, and Jesus wants them, these specific people, to see his glory, to see him transfigured before them. He does it just for them. They need to witness it. It says his face shone like the sun. The other synoptics don't mention his face shining like the sun. But they do mention it changing. Changing into other is how it's described. Matthew is unique in his specificity. And this phrase is meant to remind us of other times where people were shining after being in the presence of the Lord. It's meant to remind us of the same kind of imagery mentioned several times in the Old Testament. For example, if you really go way back, you might remember the same kind of language from our study in Daniel. In DJ's message on October 7, 2018, which I'm sure you have memorized, he discussed the messenger to Daniel in chapter 10. Listen to how he's described. Daniel 10, verse 6, his body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And you might remember that DJ talked about the controversy in Daniel about whether or not this is Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance. What isn't contended This face is shining shining like the sun happens when you're in the presence of God. The same type of imagery from Matthew 13 is in the parable of the wheats and the tares. After the tares are dragged away into a blazing furnace, this is what Christ says about the wheat. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. You will shine like the sun in your father's kingdom. You may remember that Moses himself had a shining face at one point. After being in the presence of God, Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and this is how the passage describes him. Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face And they were afraid to come near him. This is John's description of the vision of Christ from Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. The eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
Matthew goes on to mention Jesus' clothes shining, becoming white like light. So the overall image we get from this is that Jesus' glory is displayed. As I mentioned, it's displayed for them to see, for them to witness. As we get later in the passage, for them to recount after Jesus is raised from the dead. Scholar J. Beam had this to say about the transformation. Transformation from an earthly form into a superterrestrial. Before the eyes of his most intimate disciples, the human appearance of Jesus was for a moment changed into that of a heavenly being in a transfigured world. And when they see the transformation, what they also see, and then Luke says, after coming out of a deep sleep, they see that Jesus is with Moses and Elijah. Friends, to the Jews, these two would have represented several things coming together. We know these were great men, but they also represent specific genres in Jewish life. Moses is the author of the law, and Elijah is a great prophet. And this part can be confusing, because later on, they're going to ask questions about Elijah coming back to restore everything before the awesome day of the Lord. We know he's prophesied to to, uh, return, and Dave read that specific passage for us this morning out of Malachi 4. And about Elijah returning, Jesus says this in Matthew 11, verse 14. Jesus clarifies when Elijah is set to fulfill this, and in fact describes it as being fulfilled in John the Baptist. Listen to him in Matthew eleven fourteen. If you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. This is Jesus talking about John the Baptist, and we look in Luke 1, we read this from the angel Gabriel talking to Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist. Many of the sons of Israel, he will turn back to the Lord, their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared to the Lord. There he's quoting from Malachi and attributing it to John. So Jesus comes together with Moses, who is the author of the law, Elijah, the prophet taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot so that the disciples can see the physical representation of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. So then we go on to see the response of the disciples. So if we look at verse 4, Peter says, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make other tents, three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And don't you just love Peter's enthusiasm? I picture him with a very earnest, already thinking about how to help the Lord. It's good that we're here, Lord. And if you wish, if you need it, we're ready to make you a tent and Elijah and a Moses too. It's kind of interesting that you can think about that in the middle of seeing Jesus' glory And Moses and Elijah standing on the top of a mount, your instinct is, it's good that I'm here. Maybe we should make some tents so we could all hang out. The significant part of this is not the tent, it's the idea. Peter is offering to build them a place to stay. And don't we try and do the same thing? 
There are times in our lives where everything seems so good and the Lord seems so near. Many times we want to just freeze that moment. And sometimes we've already moved past it, but what we want to is get back to that moment. As we walk out this Christian life, it is natural to look back in times in our lives where we were growing, because that is your job as a disciple, to grow, to share, to teach. It is natural for us to want to get back to that. But you can't. In Luke says about this particular dialogue that Peter didn't know what he was saying. And it's not that, the idea there is not that Peter didn't understand what he was saying. It's that it's, it's, it's inappropriate. It's a little unclear. But the idea in Luke is the suggestion that either building a tent for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah is inappropriate. Or the idea that they were going to stay on the mountain is inappropriate. But what's not unclear is that Jesus has told them they're going to have to come off the mountain. Starting from his birth, Jesus starts out with a king trying to kill him. He ends up getting killed on a cross. And heading towards the cross, I wonder if the inappropriate part is Peter trying to tell the Messiah the best way to be the Messiah. Because we know that this moment doesn't last, it cannot last, because Jesus' mission isn't this mountain It's a mountain called Golgotha. And it's amazing how this is unfolding. And God has woven this together into this single moment in time where he orchestrates this moment where three Jewish disciples would be standing there witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, the presence of God, the representatives for the law and the prophets just so that they could point towards this moment in the deepest, darkest days and nights. When your hope is waning or being tested, these glimpses of the true and better prophet, priest, and king will sustain you, friends. It may not deliver you from earthly trials, but it will sustain you. And when you doubt, take comfort. You are not alone. The disciples doubted also. W.H. Auden says, Christ did not enchant man. He demanded that they believe in him except on one occasion, the transfiguration. For a brief while, Peter, James, and John were permitted to see Christ in all his glory. For that brief while, they had no need of faith. The vision vanished, and the memory of it did not prevent them from all forsaking him when he was arrested or Peter from denying that he had ever known him. Peter is our confirmation that God does not expect perfection from us. He doesn't expect us to believe perfectly. And if we keep looking in verse 5, we see God show up again in a bright cloud, and he proclaims, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Just like at Jesus' baptism, God is there, and he speaks. And God's presence and voice says, Cause them to fall on their face in terror. So the disciples again show the appropriate response when God shows up, right? They're afraid. It says they're terrified. They fall on their faces. Jesus was there in a glorified body with a face that shone like the sun. His robes were transformed into white light. Seems 
likely that we'd all be terrified. And he's there with Moses and Elijah. They want to build them a tent, but when God spoke, it terrifies them. I love this next part because it's the comforter who comes to them. Jesus comes to them, and in verse 7, it says, Rise and have no fear. But I love the part before it, too. It says he came to them and touched them. If you can imagine for a minute being in the presence of God and being falling on your face and being terrified, this image of Jesus coming to them, drawing their attention by touching them, and then telling them not to fear. This is what makes the cross so poignant is this is where Christ was forsaken by God for you. And he had to be forsaken. He had to have all traces of grace removed, all protection from the Father, so that he would be crushed by the full weight of your sin. Christ pays your debt. And this is what it says in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And for the disciples, they've got a long road ahead, and this moment is preparing them for those moments, that moment where they will lose their lives. But in this moment, they get to see Jesus, full deity. And in that moment, Jesus on the cross, they get to see Jesus, full humanity. A moment of total humiliation where Jesus had his skin stripped from him, was mocked and ridiculed, was hung on a cross and pierced for our transgressions and died so that we might live. And this passage goes on to somewhat of a Q&A where the disciples seek clarity about just what they've witnessed and Jesus admonishes them to tell no one about the vision they've had. So when we look at verse 11, that's the part that's a little confusing. Elijah does come and he will restore all things. It sounds a little confusing because he's implying that Elijah will restore all things. And then he goes on to explain it, as he does with everything. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So here we learn that Elijah is not coming back. And they are not going to stay on the mountain. Verse 12 tells them, So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. That's when they get it. The disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Friends, they have seen Jesus' glory. They've seen God's manifestation. But we know going forward that Peter will outright deny him and the others will abandon him and one will just outright betray him. And this moment in Scripture is so... When they forget this moment, at that moment, they were reminded at a later moment of who Jesus is. When they see him resurrected, this moment will play back to them. 
He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. You will fail in your desire to crush sin in your life. You will deny the master with your disobedience. And that's not it. Physically, your body will betray you. Your youth will wane. Things will happen. Gravity will be the dominant force acting on your body. Your quest to run massive mileage will be limited by your knee aches, your foot pain, your back pain. You will have setbacks. Your stomach will rebel against you. And what was once so magical to eat will now cause you to writhe in pain and wish you hadn't. And this is the humanness that we all face. This is the journey that we're all on. In the midst of this, each week Christ calls us to remember his perfection. And here he reveals what that, what that will look like for us in the future. When he restores everything, our bodies, the earth. But we need to stake stock and, and anchor ourselves to his faithfulness and his promises. And that's difficult. You know, when we're reading through the Gospels, when we read through the Sermon on the Mount, oftentimes we have this clear application of do this. And the Gospels that don't have a do this, instead they have a believe this. This is one of those. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ did. What you should do is first believe it then rest in it, be transformed by it, hope in it, trust in it. That's the hardest part, is the believing and the resting. Because often, what we're motivated to do is to do the doing. But this passage is about the truth of who Christ is. And that is the best truth that you can find. Not about what we can do, but about what he did. And remember Christ's words to the disciples. Do not fear. This this is important. Jesus tells them not to fear because his glory has been revealed to them. They are believers. They have nothing to fear in this life because they have the promise of the next life secured in the very blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Peter ends his first letter to believers in Asia Minor. 1 Peter, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is God's promise to you, believers. Joni Erickson taught us, says, the best we can hope for in this life is a not whole peek at the shining realities ahead. Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to that which waits over the horizon. Friends, in the midst of chaos, 
in the midst of injustice and pandemics and humanity, this God loves and cares for you and sent his son to make all things new. Yes, we have to wait for some of it. Yes, it is difficult. This world is in anguish and we all feel it. We want to cry out against all the things that are wrong with this world, which is right. But while we rightly speak out against injustice and murder and racism and tragedy and sickness and lives cut short by accident or on purpose, our best answer for a different future lies in a grave emptied over 2,000 years ago. A risen Savior is still our greatest and only hope. This is the bedrock that we need to build our faith on. This is the anchor that we can cling to. This is the future that we can pray for, that Christ would bring a harvest. Until he returns, while we do what we can to work to make this world better, we wait and we hope and we trust. And while we can make a difference, Christ is the real difference maker. Let's pray.